1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast. The podcast dedicated to serial killers. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vyborg Thu. In tonight's episode, we continue our stay in the continental United States of America. A dear listener brought this particular expose to my attention some time ago, and for this I am grateful. The serial murderer we take a close look at. Tonight, is a man whose crimes rival the very worst of America's serial killers. Son of Sam does not hold a candle to this man's depravity, and BTK is a mere amateur, body count wise. Again, it is a story of how a few serial killers end up media darlings, while other even more dangerous and evil killers go under the radar. I hope that the Serial Killer podcast can bring the Riverside Killer's story to the public's conscience once again, as I believe his story is one of importance. He murdered at least 20 innocent women, most of them prostitutes, and is a cautionary tale Of how society looks away while those living on its fringes are hunted down. The killer's name is none other than William Lester Suff, and this is his story. I am very fond of doing this show, and I could not do it without you, dear listener. However, even though I, from time to time, have great sponsors. In order to keep the show going, I am very much dependent on my dear patrons. If you enjoyed the show, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Serial Killer Podcast. There, you can join the $10 plus club, where everyone who donates $10 or more gets 100% exclusive access to bonus episodes and content. Right now, there are three such episodes out, and they really add spice to the show. Remember, patreon.com forward slash the Serial Killer Podcast to support the show and gain exclusive benefits as an official TSK Producer. Imagine, if you will, dear listener, traveling through what can easily be described as the real world's entrance into Dante Alighieri's Seven Circles of Hell. A thick veil of smog rests over the district we walk towards, and the permeating smell which emanates from many of the local factories is putrid and reminiscent of both industrial and human waste. It is early morning, shortly after dawn on the 30th of October, 1986. The Ruby industrial area is our destination, a short distance from Riverside, California, near Aguamanza Road and Market Street. Riverside is a burgeoning urban sprawl which boasts a UC campus, Mount Rubidoux, and a county population growth unmatched in any nearby region. But we are not in the affluent area with beautiful people. We follow a local man clad in rags. He was winding his way through the streets, scavenging aluminum cans, when he noticed the body of a young woman wedged in a drainage ditch. The woman was lying on her back, her blouse and shorts ripped to shreds. She was covered in blood, and it looked as though her genital area had been mutilated. The man quickly dropped his bag of cans and ran into a local factory for assistance. The young woman was later identified as twenty-three-year-old Michelle Yvette Guterres, a former resident of Corpus Christi, Texas. An autopsy revealed she suffered severe trauma to the anal and vaginal areas, and multiple stab wounds were discovered on her face, chest, and buttocks. Ligature marks on her neck suggested that she had been strangled as the gruesome mutilations took place. In the end, Investigators had a brutal murder on their hands and few clues to follow. Less than two weeks later, on the 11th of December, investigators were called to the scene of another apparent homicide. The victim, later identified as 24 year old Charlotte Jean Palmer, a transient from Anna, Illinois was discovered near Highway 74 in Romoland. According to the 15 most horrific murder cases ever to shock America by Bill Kelly, the scene was approximately 25 miles away from the Guterres murder site and it was not immediately apparent whether the two deaths were related. In addition, Palmer's body was so badly decomposed the county coroner was unable to determine the cause of death. Just shy of a month later, in January 1987, the naked and mutilated body of 37-year-old Linda Ann Ortega was found along a dirt road in Lake Elsinore. The victim had been dead for at least three days and high levels of alcohol and cocaine were found in her blood. Investigators later discovered that Ortega, a part-time fast food worker, had a criminal record for drugs and prostitution. Investigators now had three similar homicides, and some were beginning to wonder if they had a serial killer on their hands. All doubts about this were put to rest on the 2nd of May, 1987, when 27-year-old Martha Bess Young was discovered in a ravine not far from the Ortega murder site. The victim, originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, was discovered fully naked in a spread-eagle position. As with Ortega, she had a rap sheet for prostitution and high levels of drugs were found in her body. The county coroner later determined she had been dead for approximately three weeks and died from a lethal dose of amphetamines as she was being strangled. Serial killers are not uncommon in California. You might even say it's the mecca for serial murder, with a lot of the world's most famous serial killers hunting and killing there. Investigators working the prostitute murders were all too familiar with the names. The Toolbox Killers, the Hillside Stranglers, Leonard Lake, Charles Ing, and of course, the enigmatic and infamous Zodiac. They were also aware that a serial killer... Once he or she has gotten a taste for killing, the only way to end the increasing amount of dead victims is to apprehend or kill the killer. A task force was quickly formed and headed by Riverside Police Chief Linford L. Richardson, Sheriff's Lieutenant Al Hearn, Captain Bill Reynolds, Lieutenant William H. Caldwell, and Sheriff Quab among others. Under their supervision were fourteen detectives, and as such, it was the largest enforcement effort ever assembled in the county. Apparently aware of the efforts police officials were taking to find him, the killer either stopped killing or found another dumping ground. Which remains undiscovered to this day. Regardless, by 1989, two years since his last known murder, the killer struck again. Lake Elsinore is located west in the county of Riverside. It's a beautiful lake, bordering a large nature reserve on its western shore. On the 27th of January 1989, The body of 37-year-old Linda May Ruiz, a known prostitute, was discovered on the lake's beach. The victim's head was buried in the sand, and an autopsy later revealed large quantities of alcohol in the blood. Sand was found in the victim's throat, and cause of death was listed as acute asphyxiation, following having her mouth and throat filled with sand. Nearly six months later, on the 28th of June, 1989, the body of 28-year-old Kimberly Little was discovered in Cottonwood Canyon. A police query on the victim revealed that she too was a known prostitute and drug user. Her bruised and battered corpse, was taken to the county coroner's office, where an autopsy revealed the presence of alcohol and drugs. The official cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. While another murder did not sit well with the task force, they were excited to learn that several pubic hairs and fibers, unrelated to the victim herself, were discovered on her body. This evidence alone told them very little about the killer, but if a suspect were to emerge, the samples could play a major role in identifying him. By 1989, DNA was beginning to be commonly used in prosecuting criminals, and having the killer's pubic hairs on hand was a major find. Following the murder of Kimberly Little, Local newspapers began to look into the murders, and within weeks, out-of-town reporters began arriving in Riverside. The killer was soon dubbed the Riverside Prostitute Killer, or the Lake Elsinore Killer. Captain Bill Reynolds held several press conferences and tried to calm the public, assuring them that all efforts were being made to find the killer. The killings, however, did not abate. Under six months after the Cottonwood Canyon case, on the 11th of November, a local resident discovered the bludgeoned and mutilated body of 36-year-old Judy Lynn Angel. She was found near Temescal Canyon Road, just northwest of Lake Elsinore. Angel had an extensive criminal record, which included arrests for prostitution and possession of drugs. During the autopsy, the coroner discovered several deep gashes on the victim's hands. The injuries appeared to be defensive wounds, which meant she had tried to fend off her attacker as the killer was trying to stab her to death with a knife. It might appear that her avid defense against the knife blows. The killer instead opted to overpower her using brute force. The victim suffered several blows to the face, which ultimately crushed her cranium, and thus caused her to die. It had been a gruesome death, probably lasting several minutes of extreme fear and massive amounts of pain. The common denominator among the victims of serial killers is vulnerability. Prostitutes are the number one choice of victims among serial killers because they will get right into the car with a stranger, can easily be dehumanized in the mind of the killer, and are not missed for a very long time by family members. It is also a known fact that police, at least at the time, Do not start to investigate the murder or disappearance of a prostitute with the same eagerness as they do, for example, an affluent married woman with children. The majority of serial killers hunt humans. The majority of serial killers are also sexually motivated, although, for many, the act of raping the victim is secondary to the extreme rush of completely dominating a victim and watching them die. Several killers, Ted Bundy being the most famous, have likened the feeling at the moment of death to that of being a god. The act of killing takes on similar characteristics as that of drug abuse. The killer gets addicted to the feeling and will often escalate their crimes in order to feel the same way the first murder made them feel. And so, they will commit the crimes over and over again, until they kill themselves, get killed, or arrested. During a serial killer's cooling-off period, the killer will fantasize about the previous murder and, like a drug, he will be content for a period of time. However. With the passing of time, the urge to kill, the memories of the last kill, and their increasingly depraved fantasies, will become less and less appealing, and the killer will have to kill again, in order to find the fulfillment the killer desires. Oftentimes, the killings become more violent than the last, and the cooling-off period becomes shorter and shorter. The killer might also become more brazen. The fact that police often doesn't catch the killer after murdering several victims, sometimes he starts to believe they are protected by God, or is a God themselves, and thus start to get sloppy and indiscreet. Just so it was with the Riverside Killer. Just a month after the discovery of Judy Lynn, on the 13th of December, the body of 23-year-old Christina Leal was found in Quail Valley. Unlike previous victims, she was fully clothed and did not appear to have suffered serious abuse or mutilation prior to death. A resident of Paris, California, Tina had previous arrests for drugs and prostitution. Investigators found tire tracks at the crime scene and made several impressions, which would later be used to compare with a suspect's vehicle. The victim's hands were encased in paper bags to preserve anything that might be under the nails. At the lab, the body would be examined for hairs and fibers. Later that day, during the victim's autopsy, The county coroner discovered that the victim had been stabbed directly in the heart. Due to the victim's clothing, the wound was not immediately noticeable, which suggested the killer had dressed her after the murder. The knife wound, while potentially fatal, was not the immediate cause of death. The victim died as a result of asphyxiation by strangulation. Several pubic hairs and fibres were removed from the body, which would later be matched to the ones discovered on Kimberly Little. Then, as the coroner inspected the victim's genital area, he made a startling discovery. The killer had shoved a General Electric Miser 95 Watt light bulb through the vagina and cervix up into her uterus. An act not seen or heard of in California until then. I have tried to find information whether the light bulb was inserted into the woman's womb pre or post mortem, but have failed to do so. If the killer did it while Christina was alive, it would have been excruciating, and the killer would have had to have used excessive force to keep her down while doing it. In my humble opinion, the bulb was put there post-mortem. Christina was strangled to death, and if the killer had put the bulb into her womb while alive, the struggle and fight doing so would probably have caused the bulb to shatter, and the bulb was intact when found. The killer's crimes were escalating. The murders were becoming more perverse, and the time between the killings was getting shorter. There was no doubt that the killer would strike again, but without a single suspect to pursue, it was impossible to know where to look. This is one of the main problems when investigating murders of prostitutes. There are seldom many witnesses that notice anything odd, as the women often work alone, and if they work alongside other prostitutes, they probably wouldn't take particular notice of the many various johns the victim drove away with. Also, getting prostitutes to willingly talk to the police is notoriously difficult. On the morning of a new decade, the 18th of January, 1990, Investigators were summoned to a scene east of I-15 in Lake Elsinore. Earlier that morning a jogger had accidentally stumbled upon the half-nude body of a woman, whom investigators recognized as a 24-year-old known prostitute named Darla Jane Ferguson. She too had died as a result of strangulation. Again, I feel I have to elaborate somewhat. When the media reports that a victim has been strangled, the general public probably has the Hollywood idea of how strangulation takes place. In actuality, being strangled to death is one of the most painful ways to die there is. The lungs scream for oxygen, and the pain of this only increase. Try holding your breath under water for a long time, and you quickly understand what I mean. It is unbearable. To add to this, the victim's throat is crushed, causing internal bleeding and extreme amounts of pain. For Darla Jean, the pain was so severe that she clenched her teeth together so hard that she nearly bit off her own tongue. As with the previous crime scene, investigators found tire tracks and made several impressions which were later matched to the others.
3: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com ACAST. Quality sleep is essential.
1: That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, com slash Serial Killer. Less than a month later, on the 8th of February, Farmers working at an orchard in High Grove discovered the nude body of 35-year-old Carol Lynn Miller. A known prostitute and drug addict, Carol went missing one month earlier. Her missing person file had probably not been particularly prioritized, as prostitutes often disappear off the map, and most times this is voluntary. The cause of death was listed as multiple stab wounds to the chest and asphyxiation. The coroner also made note of a wound near Carol's right nipple. Pubic hairs were discovered on the victim, which were later matched to the ones on file from previous murders. For some reason, the killer seems to have cooled off a bit after killing Carol Lynn. Cheryl Coker was last seen by her husband on the 30th of October, 1990, as she walked to University Avenue in Riverside to engage in prostitution. On the 6th, of november her nude body was found in a dumpster located in an industrial area of riverside the cause of death was ligature strangulation on her neck was a single thin ligature mark that was so deep in the front that it cut through the skin fingernail marks on her neck were consistent with someone trying to grab the ligature The reddish-brown color of her eyes indicated internal hemorrhaging. There was also hemorrhage in the soft tissue under the ligature mark, and there were bruises on her forearms and on the backs of her legs. Most shockingly, Cheryl's right breast had been completely cut off her body post-mortem and was found approximately thirty feet away from the dumpster. With the death of Cheryl, the Riverside Task Force had already spent over $100,000, and they were still no closer to catching their killer. Most homicides are solved within 14 hours. Serial killers can stay on the loose for weeks, months, years, even decades. There is a self-selection process. Most serial killers very smartly wait until the most effective moment to attack their victim, clean up the crime scene afterwards, or dump the body of their victim in some desolate area. In many cases, the police have no physical evidence at all to work with, although they did have quite a bit in the Riverside case. A janitor was emptying dustbins at a factory complex on Iowa Avenue on the 21st of December 1990, when he discovered the nude and carefully posed body of a young woman. Investigators on the scene recognized the victim as 27-year-old Susan Sternfeld, a local prostitute and drug addict. The cause of death was strangulation. There were hemorrhages in her eyes and eyelids and in the muscles of her neck, abrasions on her neck and a fracture in her larynx. She had died as a result of strangulation after enduring the extreme pain of having her larynx crushed as she struggled for air. Victim number 13 was 42-year-old Kathleen Leslie Milne, a.k.a. Carol Kathleen Swenson, a.k.a. Kathy Pluckett. She worked on University Avenue in Riverside. Her sister last saw her on the 18th of January. A passing motorist spotted her nude body the next day, adjacent to a dirt road in the Lake Elsinore area. The cause of death was again asphyxiation due to strangulation and obstruction of her airway by a white sock that had been stuffed into her mouth. She had hemorrhages in her eyes, mouth and neck, and a fracture in her larynx. There were no other mutilations to the body, but she had been brutally raped, and there were semen found inside her vagina. As the killer's body count continued to rise, so did the demands for justice. Public outrage toward the faceless killer was vented in letters to newspaper editors, the Riverside Task Force, and during community meetings. National media outlets began to regularly broadcast the case, and at one point, the television program America's Most Wanted covered the killer's crimes. In an effort to find the killer, all available law enforcement personnel began combing the area. At one point, the manhunt grew to include over twenty law enforcement agencies. Regardless of the spotlight upon him, the killer was undaunted and continued to elude identification and capture. On the morning of the 27th of April, 1991, a transient stumbled upon the body of 24-year-old Cherie Michel Passeur, a part-time maid and prostitute. The victim had been left in a flowerbed in a bowling alley parking lot. She had been brutally raped, strangled, and posed, a toilet plunger protruding from her vagina. It looked a lot like the killer was taunting the police and the public, actively trying to humiliate both the victim as perversely as he could, as well as the police for not being able to catch him. Following the discovery of Paisur, in a brief interview with the Bay City News, Lake Elsinore detective Bob Creed defended accusations that the department was dragging their feet because the victims were prostitutes. Standing in front of a wall, which displayed the serial killer's handiwork, Guterres, Palmer, Ortega, Young, Ruiz, Little, Angel, Leal, Ferguson, Miller, Coker, Sternfeld, Milne, and the latest Cherie Michel Paisseur. Creed said, We don't care if they're drug addicts or prostitutes. They're getting the same resource level as if they were cheerleaders. At this time of the investigation, he was probably correct. An enormous amount of resources were directed at finding the killer. But how diligent the police were before the case became a media sensation is something else entirely. Picnickers near Railroad Canyon Road discovered the remains of 37-year-old Sherry Ann Latham on Independence Day, the 4th of July, 1991. Anne was also a known prostitute and drug user. The victim's hand was wrapped around some nearby branches, suggesting that she was still alive when the killer left. Apparently, Latham had made one last feeble attempt to crawl away before succumbing to her injuries. An autopsy later revealed that the victim had died as a result of strangulation and feline hairs were discovered on her corpse. According to the victim's friends, she did not own a cat, thus leading investigators to wonder if her killer did. Just when it seemed they were never going to catch a break, investigators got their first major lead on the 15th of August, 1991. A man, driving a grey van, picked up a prostitute near the University of California. The woman told investigators that everything was going fine at first, but then that John became angry and began assaulting her for no reason. Luckily, the girl managed to jump out of the vehicle and run down the street. The man quickly sped off, but stopped at a nearby corner and picked up the girl's friend a 23-year-old prostitute named Kelly Marie Hammond. Later that same night, investigators found Hammond's naked body near the intersection of Sampson Avenue and Delilah Street. The victim had been strangled, and her body was still warm. Investigators had just missed the killer they so desperately sought. The woman who escaped the killer's clutches was able to help investigators create a composite sketch of the suspect and his vehicle. Investigators quickly issued an APB, and within hours, newspapers and television stations were broadcasting the killer's likeness. It showed a burly man with short hair, a bug-like nose, and a pronounced double chin. On the 13th of September, 1991, a construction worker found the body of 30-year-old Catherine MacDonald, a known drug-user and prostitute, near a building site in Tiscony Hills. Her body was posed, with her legs spread apart, her feet together, and her arms extended outward from her body. The cause of death was neck compression and multiple sharp-force injuries. There was hemorrhaging in her eyes, abrasions on her neck, and a large cut wound on her neck that penetrated through the muscle, the trachea, the left jugular vein, and the left carotid artery. There were three stab wounds to her chest, two of which penetrated her heart. The stab wounds to the chest and the wound to the neck were inflicted before she died. There was bleeding in the neck, separate from the bleeding associated with the neck wound, which was evidence of brutal compression to her neck. Her right breast had been sliced completely off post-mortem, and the killer had apparently taken it with him. There was a stab wound and four cut wounds to her genitalia. The stab wound and two of the cut wounds were inflicted before she died. At first glance, investigators thought the murder might be unrelated to the others. The victim was African American, whereas all previous victims were Hispanic or Caucasian. Investigators surmised that the killer heard a recent broadcast on the 6 o'clock news, during which a psychologist said that the killer was probably a white male who preyed exclusively on white women. Hence, the purpose of McDonald's murder was perhaps to show the media who was in charge. And so it was. The following month, on the 30th of October, a man was driving along Summerhill Drive when he spotted something odd just off the shoulder of the road. At first I thought it was a mannequin, he later told the investigators, but at closer inspection I realized it was the corpse of a woman. The victim was later identified as 35-year-old Delilah Zamora Wallace, a prostitute, drug addict, and mother of five. The county coroner listed the cause of death as asphyxiation. There were hemorrhages in her eyes, eyelids, and neck, and abrasions on her neck, perhaps caused by fingernails. Her larynx was crushed, an injury that, according to pathologists, requires an extreme amount of pressure. The victim toll was now at 18, and investigators still didn't have one viable suspect. The killer was striking at least once a month now, and investigators knew it was only a matter of time before he killed again. And he did. Two days before Christmas, 1991, Eleanor Ojeda Cesara's naked body was found near Victoria Avenue, just down the street from the Riverside police station. The 39-year-old drug addict and prostitute had been strangled, and again her right breast had been sliced clean off and was found approximately 40 feet from her body. There were abrasions on her neck, hemorrhages in her eyes and eyelids, a fracture in her thyroid cartilage, and a fracture and bleeding in her hyoid bone as a result of the killer crushing her throat. There was a stab wound in the middle of her chest, which also would have been fatal. The proximity of the body to the police station angered the investigators, who were convinced that the killer purposely placed her there in order to make fools out of them. On the night of the 9th of January, 1992, Officer Frank Orta was patrolling University Avenue, an area known for prostitution and drugs, when he suddenly noticed a van matching the description of the APB make an illegal U-turn. When Orta flashed his lights and siren, The 1989 Mitsubishi pulled off to the side, and he quickly called for backup. Within minutes, officers Don Towley and Duane Beckman were at the scene. The driver, a man by the name of William Suff, appeared to be polite, but upon running his name through the computer, Orta discovered that his driver's license was suspended, and his vehicle registration was expired. The suspect was then transported to the Riverside Police Station for questioning. Back at the Riverside Police Headquarters, homicide detective Christina Kears and John Davis began questioning the suspect. The interrogation lasted for hours, and Suff repeatedly denied any involvement in the string of prostitutes being killed. Investigators were going to need evidence to gain a conviction. And without a confession, their job became even harder. Police collected blood and hair samples from the suspect and arrested him for suspicion of multiple murders. As investigators scrambled to find evidence, members of the media began digging into Suff's past. While his family remained tight-lipped and details of his early life remained vague, they were able to obtain several bits of information from public records. William Lester Suff was born on the 20th of August, 1950, in Torrance, California. Unfortunately, when it comes to early childhood events, very little is known. In regard to his siblings... Suff's brothers were troubled, one by drugs, the other by a nagging predilection for pedophilia. According to school classmates, Suff was a friendly person and skillful musician, who graduated 87th in a class of 144. The image of the friendly personality disintegrated with the 1974 report that Suff, then 24, and his former wife were arrested and later convicted of beating their two-year-old daughter to death. Suff was sentenced to 70 years in prison, but earned his parole in March 1984 after serving only 10 years. His wife served a mere twenty months before having her conviction overturned. It seems to me very strange that he only served ten years for murdering a two-year-old child, his own daughter. And had he been convicted today, I doubt he would get anything but a full life sentence. In the seventies, prison sentences in the U.S. were less severe than they are today and it is tragic to think about how many lives would have been saved if Suff hadn't been given an early parole. In 1986, Suff began working as a stock clerk for the county and, ironically enough, had delivered furniture to the Riverside Task Force headquarters midway through the killing spree. Friends of Suff described him as a mild-mannered man, who kept to himself and spent his free time writing stories and cookbooks. On at least one occasion, his chili recipes won him first prize at the local cook-off. On the 28th of February, 1992, Suff was arraigned before Judge Becky Dugan in Division 22 of the Riverside Municipal Courthouse. Suff's attorney, Floyd Zagorski, entered a plea of innocence on two of the nineteen deaths to which his client was charged. After hearing arguments from both sides, Judge Dugan ruled there was enough evidence to send the case to trial. William Suff's trial began on the 25th of March, 1995, before Judge W. Charles Morgan, in the Riverside Hall of Justice. A jury, consisting of seven men and five women, sat in the pews awaiting opening statements. Paul E. Zellerbach chose to go first and explain to the jury that detectives had enough evidence to connect Suff to the murders of thirteen prostitutes. He went on to describe Suff as a violent sexual sadist who enjoyed torturing and murdering women. Suff's two lawyers, Randolph K. Driggs, a former prosecutor who had worked with Zellerbach, and Frank S. Peasley, described Suff as an easygoing man who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is largely a circumstantial case, Driggs told jurors. Testing of DNA found on or near nine victims reflected matches to Suff. In addition, over the next several months, over 30 witnesses were called to the stand, the most damning of all being Faye Springer, the State Department of Justice's foremost criminologist on hair and fiber analysis. According to Kears, Springer testified that microscopic samples of hair found at two murder scenes matched Suff's own hair's. And that fiber from a pillow, blanket, and sleeping bag found inside Suff's van, were similar to those discovered near the bodies of Kim Little and Christina Leal. In addition, Springer said a towel that covered Little's naked body contained two fibers similar to the floor carpeting in Suff's vehicle. Other fibers, which were found on Suff's car seat, matched that of a T-shirt and sock found on Lille's body. After 54 days of testimony and 4 days of deliberations, the jury found Suff guilty on 12 of the 13 counts of first-degree murder and 1 count of attempted murder. The following day, on the 17th of August, 1995, Suff was given the death sentence. As of this recording, William Suff resides on death row at San Quentin Prison, where he is awaiting execution. He continues to maintain his innocence and claims that police used him as a scapegoat. It has been rumored that Suff used two of his victims' breasts in chilies he prepared for the Riverside County Employees' Annual Picnic. But that information has never been confirmed
3: plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: And so ends the saga of the Riverside Killer, William Lester Suff. I hope you enjoyed it, and join me next week when I will present to you a fresh new episode. So, as they say in the land of radio... Stay tuned. This podcast would not be possible if it had not been for my dear patrons who pledge their hard-earned money every month. There are especially a few of those patrons I would like to thank in person. These patrons are my 18 most loyal patrons. They have contributed for at least the last 31 episodes, and their names are Maud, Amber, and Christina. Claudette, Cody, Evan, Jennifer, Lisa, Lisbeth, Mark, Mickey, Philip, PJ, Russell, Sam, Sarah, and Troy. You really helped produce this show, and you have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. If you wish to join this exclusive club of TSK producers, go to com slash donate and pledge $15 or more to have your name read live on this show. Thank you, good night and good luck.